everyone. I'm Sheila Pearl, the Love Doctor. And this is the beginning, the beginning few episodes of my very first podcast. Let's talk about making love better. <laughs> and when I tell people the title of my podcast, some people giggle, thinking, oh, this must be about making love better. You know, it must be about sex. And it could be about sex, but we're not having sex talk, but we are having a lot of love talk. And as I say in my description of this podcast series, these episodes, love comes in many forms. Love of people, love of your work, love of the world, love of ideas, love of food, love of music. We have many ways of experiencing love. So many years ago, I was serving a congregation in New Jersey, Franklin Lakes, New Jersey. And it, I came to that congregation because of my love of singing and my love of people. And I became the cantor of this congregation. And one of my congregate families was Peter Heyman and his family. And his son, Gabriel, was my bar mitzvah student. And that's how Peter and I years ago met. Now I met him and his family. And as circle, as life circles around, what was so interesting is that years later, we reconnected through a mutual friend who had invited us to participate in a book project and we, re we reconnected through BNI. And so here we are at this later stage in our lives, what is it, Peter, some 30 years later? Almost 30 years since uh, the Gabriel's Bar Mitzvah. Exactly. So I have invited Peter to join me for this conversation because first of all, I value him as a human being. We have been connected through life in many different ways and I've, noticed and, and witnessed him going through his evolution in his work, his career. And uh, one of the themes perhaps for this conversation could be the theme of connections and interconnections and interconnectivity, which leads to much richness in our lives. So one of the other connections Peter and I have is with Bob Proctor. Bob Proctor was one of my teachers and mentors long ago who introduced me to the concept of coaching. And before he even established and created his own coaching, success, success coaching program, uh, he told me about his vision for coaching. So he wrote the foreword to a book that I co-authored several years ago called uh, The Winning Connection, all about effective networking. And Bob Proctor wrote an endorsement for Peter's book, which is called, Peter, remind me, it, it's Get Out of Your Own Way, right? Get out of your own way and get on with it. That's right. Get out of your own way, get on with it, which is really what good coaching is all about. And so Bob Proctor says, this book is filled with straightforward practical insights, strategies, and tactics to make positive change in your life. So... I've invited Peter to be a part 
of this ongoing conversation, we're talking about the many faces of love and different ways that we can learn to make love better, where we can learn to create more loving connections and relationships. And in the work that Peter does, there's many different kinds of coaching. Wouldn't you just say, Peter, it's kind of broad spectrum? Yes, it's career and life coaching as an umbrella and then several things within that. Exactly. So because Peter has a subspecialty, and is it called mentor? I call it mentor, capital M-E-N, small letters T-O-R. Right. Which means, <clears throat> excuse me, he works with men. I work with men too, but probably not the same way Peter does. And I wanted him to share with you and with me in this conversation his understanding and his tips on how he has learned to assist, coach, and teach men how to be more effective communicators and therefore more effective lovers, lovers of life and lovers in terms of effective connection. Because what I do know is that the really good listener is the really good lover. The really good listener is the really good friend. The really good listener is the really good leader. So, Peter, introduce yourself to me and to us in any way you choose and give us some, some wisdom about what you've learned about men. Sure. Well, thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be with you on this new venture of yours. The podcast is very exciting. And, and our, our, our paths keep crossing in such interesting ways. And I love that. I just love that. I think of you as Cantor Pearl, of course, for for my son, it was a very special time. And uh, for those of you who don't know, Sheila has an absolutely magnificent voice, just gorgeous voice. And, uh, and, and I guess, you know, we're attracted to people, talk about love, you know, we're attracted to people often if they have a similar kind of trajectory or path. And one of the things I love about you is you re reinvent yourself over time and you have, and you've taken on new things. And I find that just, just wonderful um, about you. And um, I, if I may say, I've done that myself. I've, <clears throat> I've done many things in my life. Um, I'll take you quickly. I started out running a youth program right out of college. Loved it. Did it for five years. It was a personal growth center. Just loved working with junior high and senior high students. This was in Connecticut. I don't know if you, Sheila, or your listeners were raised with the idea of finding a life purpose. I was not. Back when I was growing up and the way I was raised, it was more transactional. You find something to do, you find it, and you follow that path. And the main thing is to be independent. If you're fortunate enough to partner and have a family to support or help support the family, and that's what happened to me. I started out running a youth program, did not know, I mean, I knew I loved it, but I didn't know it was going to be like a lifetime thing because I made no money. It was very, I didn't need money. I was single. I was about to get married to the same woman I am today. You may remember Lois, an amazing... I do, I do. And that, that, that's quite an accomplishment in and of itself. That might be another whole conversation, Peter. Oh, absolutely. Uh, We've been married 44 years and counting. Yeah. And it's, uh, 
you know, I'll probably start to cry, but it, you know, in thinking about it, it, it was the most fortunate thing in my life was um, finding Lois, convincing her and staying with her all these years. She's amazing. We can, I can go on and on about her. Um, and so I was about to get married. And I realized I, I, be, I better figure out how to make some money, right? So I did then what I do now for my coaching clients. I took a personal inventory. I'm sure you do something like that with your clients. What are your strengths? What are your capabilities? What are your passions? What are your skills? So I kind of did that naturally for myself. And I realized I was a good listener, good communicator, motivator, and even inspirational. If, you're not, if you don't have those qualities, teenagers won't even listen to you. So I knew I had that going for me. And I talked to all kinds of people in all walks of life. And I realized those skills would translate well into the business world through sales. So I decided, hey, I'm going to make more money. I'm getting married. I need to make more money. I went into sales. That led to a 30-plus year career in sales, marketing, and advertising. We traipsed around the country together. Lois has a career, professional woman, very strong, independent. She's a speech pathologist. The kind of career you can move around. And so she had an interesting path for her career, doing all kinds of things within speech therapy, kind of following me in my marketing and sales career. Now, I was good at it. I made a decent living. We did have two sons, Isaac and Gabriel, uh, who are young men now, not even so young men, they're middle-aged men. And, you know, the best thing of, best title I ever had was father, husband. I also love uncle too, my two nephews. So what, but the question is, was that my life purpose? I was good at marketing and sales. I made a good living, but was it my life purpose? I still wasn't even thinking about that. It was, everything was transactional. Then someone recommended, we ended up moving back to this area in uh, Hudson Valley. And someone recommended that I visit a, a, an agency, a new city called Volunteer Counseling Services. Whoever, the, the man who recommended it to me was so right. I became a volunteer counselor while I was in marketing for, my, for making money, a volunteer counselor for 12 years. Wow. Trained, extensively supervised. And that's when I started working with men because I was one of the few men at that time who was a volunteer. So they threw all the young men, middle-aged men at me and I started working with men. So that started it. Then I woke up one day and I said to Lois, you know something? Because that's the arc. I, I sometimes talk about my career as, as a back to the future story. So my arc, that volunteer work is, is arcing my way back to my future. I really loved counseling. I, t I, asked, I, I said to Lois, I want to go to work for VCS. I'll flip it and do my marketing on the side to make some money. And that's what I did. I joined the staff. And, but that led to a whole area of working in social justice and community organizing which I still do a great deal. And that opened me up to what was called undoing racism workshops. And I became, and that's when I got my training in working in domestic violence and working with men. So I was an instructor and a supervisor working with court ordered men in our program. And I loved it. It was phenomenal. Now the training part, I went to an institute. There's a woman by the name of Phyllis B. Frank. I don't know if you know her, Sheila, you would love her. She's amazing. I don't think she, I do. But. She stays mostly in the Rockland area, mm -hmm. but she's been 
organizing in Rockland County for over 40 years, closer to 50 years. And this is her passion. She's also a uh, therapist, a um, social work therapist. Um, and I went to an institute for this work with domestic violence, court-ordered men. Well, that opened me up. I learned about myself. I learned about myself as a white male being raised in the United States of America and what that's like in terms of socialization. There's a, there's a, so I had to take a good hard look at myself and I learned a lot because in our training in that program, and if I'm going on too much about that, let me know, but there's no distinction between me as an instructor in the program and the men court ordered to the program. There's no difference. I shouldn't say difference. There's no distinction. We're on the same continuum. We are men in America, socialized to be men in America. And what that means, one way to put it is, if anybody's ever heard of, it's called the how to be a man box, where we raise our little boys and box them in. What are the, some of the cliches we say to little boys from the very get-go? When they're, when they're two, three, four years old, we, what are the cliches we say to them? Big boys don't. Cry. Exactly. Then there's another one. Boys will be. Boys. There's a great book by Paul Kibble. He does a lot of this work with men. He's written about 30 books. He has, a, I love book titles and his book title. And I know you do too, because I love, I, I love your title of this podcast. It's so intriguing. He has a book called, and I have it here somewhere, Boys Will Be Men. And what he means by that title, and the book explains it is, we raise our little boys, we socialize our little boys in America with this cliche, boys will be boys, boys will be boys. And when do we say that, that cliche? What are boys doing when we say that? They're, they're being naughty. Being naughty? They're, they're, they're doing They're doing wrong. bad they're doing bad things. They're doing bad wrong. things. And that's, that can start when they're five years old or even earlier. So we say boys will be boys, boys will be boys, boys will be boys, all the way till 18. And then we say, okay, be a man. But we haven't shown them how. Wow. Because we've given them excuse after excuse after excuse. And then there's other things about the man box. What feelings are little boys and young men allowed to have? Uh, anger, jealousy, right? Uh, control. You know, you the, uh, they can be uh, they can be possessive. Yeah, they can get away with that, right? Yeah, uh, and it's all variations of anger. You hit it when you said anger. That's mm -hmm. the one pure emotion that little boys in America are allowed to feel, and they're not allowed to feel fear. They're not Fear. allowed to feel vulnerable. Exactly. They're not allowed to feel soft. No way. And then because if, if a boy growing up displays anything that's sort of out of that box, peers will push them back in the box. What like Or a coach will. Like one of the worst things you can say to a little boy is, Oh, you're throwing like a girl. You're running like a girl. One of the worst things you could do. And then there's things that a lot worse words, which I won't use here, but kind of like, uh, you know, sissy. 
a sissy, yeah. Right, like a sissy. And variations on that word, yes, of course. Exactly. And they're nasty and they're mean. It's to get boys back in the box. Not, people aren't consciously doing this. This is our way of socializing boys to be men. And so I'm exposed to this analysis and I'm going, oh my goodness, that's me. I mean, I was boxed in. There's no question about it. And look, I'm a wonderful man. And just ask me, and I'll tell you. And Lois will agree, I'm sure. Aha. Aha. However. Aha. Well, we're not so sure. She, she holds your feet to the fire, doesn't she? She does. But, you know, for example, part of this is to talk about abusive behavior, this training, how men can be abusive to their, to their female partners. And, I, you know, I would answer that question. I'm a wonderful guy. Just ask me. I'll tell you. Was I abusive? I never thought so. Lois was trying to tell me for about 25 years how I was abusive. Wow. So and, I didn't, and I didn't listen. Here's a man. I just told you I'm a good listener. Right. I didn't listen. Ah. You, know, you know what the abuse was? I never raised my hand. I never, you know, I would yell once in a while. Not often. <clears throat> Here's, and I learned this in training. Anything can be used to abuse. I used humor. I use sarcasm. Oh, yes. Because I was, I was literally raised, to, not only socialized, I was raised to be sarcastic. My mother was a very funny person. And sarcasm. It's a great weapon. You got it. It is. You got it. It, it can cut you to the bone with one word. You got it. So anything, even something like humor can be used to abuse. And I learned this. I, I woke Lois up. You know, it's one of those trainings where it's like two and a half days. And in the middle of it, you go home and I literally, you know, woke her up, which was, I guess, abusive. I don't know. I woke her up and I said, hey, Lois, have I been abusive to you? Well, you know her a little bit. And she didn't hesitate. One eye open and she, she said, oh, yeah, we'll talk about it in the morning. <laughs> and this is what she was trying to tell me. And, so the, I, and it's true. So my work from that moment on was first to be open to it, that I'm no different than the men I'm being trained to work with. Maybe my tactics are different. You know, I'm not, you know, there's a continuum. I, you know, we have a continuum we talk about that goes from respect. What's the ap absolute opposite end of the continuum of respect? Absolute opposite end. Well, uh, aside from disrespect, dismissal, uh, ignoring. Way over there. No, way over. The absolute opposite. Well, I, I, I won't put you on the spot. Okay. It's literally murder, right? Oh, uh, yeah. I okay. Mean, so, so, so there are variations of killing someone kill right. the spirit kill so, them off treat them like they aren't there that, that's where i was kind of going with dismissal and ignoring and so it's also all learning about you said the word before when you when you uh, answer my questions about how we box in little boys it's about control right you can be tough be strong be in command we're telling this to little kids and all the way through and so we, we try to do that. We try to be in command. We try to be in control. And when we're not, we don't have the training in terms of emotion to say I'm scared or I'm, you know, I fear something or I'm sad about something. You know, I wasn't allowed to cry when I was a little boy. I just wasn't. Here's a funny story. I hope you don't mind I'm bouncing around. At one of the bar mitzvahs, because we had them for both, I think it was, I think it was Gabriel's. And you know how the, the family greets the guests, you know? Yes. 
and I'm walking down the line, and I see my little five-foot mother, if she was five feet at all, elderly woman. And <clears throat> now I'm not a particular, I was, wasn't raised with religion. Jewish, but I, I just wasn't raised with religion. We had the bar mitzvahs because of Lois and Lois's family. They were the two of among the best days of my life, my life. Wow. And I was so emotional. I get to my little mother and I start to cry. And what, and what, and I go to hug her. You know, and what did she do? She says, what are you crying about? Oh, wow. So here I'm a grown man. And it's your son's bar mitzvah. My son's bar mitzvah. What are you crying about? Yeah. She cut it off. Wow. Now, I'm not blaming my mother. No, but that's powerful, isn't it? Because it's the, it's the power that our conditioning has on us. We have no idea. So that's, and that's how, from my own experience, that's how bottled up I was, okay? Now, I am so lucky. I found, we talk about love, okay? That's your, Dr. Love? The love doctor, yes. Doctor. I fell in love with a young teenager named Lois. <laughs> now, I'm, now I'm going to cry again, but you won't tell me to stop. No, I won't. She's 16 years old. I'm, you know, much older. I'm 17, right? And I fell in love with this girl. Now, it took us a long time to get married, about 10 years, but we finally got married. Why'd I go off on that? I forget where I was going, but... Well, the, la the, la the last scene in the story was your mother telling you, what are you crying about? It, expression of feeling. Okay, so I am so lucky. Oh, I know what I was going at. Because of my background, and I'm not different than many other men, of literally my emotions boxed in, that imagery is so strong. I went through most of my adult life saying, I don't need anyone. Oh, ouch. And I meant it, Sheila. I have Lois, I'm so lucky. I have Isaac, I'm so lucky. I have Gabriel, I have my sister-in-law, you know, my brother. <clears throat> I'm, that's it. I don't need anyone. Now, I really believe that until I learned some of these things, looked at myself, figured it out. Because I don't think you can be a good life coach or coach unless you're willing to be coached. As you oh, said, you were. I, I'm still being coached. There you go. It doesn't end, right? It, does, it never ends. If, and if I don't reach out to my coaches to hold my feet to the fire and keep me clear and open, I'm in trouble because I'm, I'm doing this work all day, every day, sometimes nights and weekends. And I owe it to my clients to be there in every way for them. But it doesn't happen automatically. I'm not a... I'm not a uh, what's the word I want? You're not an automaton. I'm not an automaton, exactly. You are a human yeah. being with a heart and a spirit, <clears throat> and you need to take care of yourself. We all do. So that's how locked in I was. Now, I was so fortunate. I don't know what I would have would have happened to me with that kind of emotional upbringing if I, if I wasn't so lucky to find a woman who, and that's why I was attracted to her, even at 16. She was so, um, she emoted. She, she cried. She laughed. And I just love being around it. You know what I mean? But I couldn't express it. By the way, I, I don't want to introduce your... your, your oh, that's okay. Talk, but, but I want to interject something that one of my teachers, Greg Braden, taught me in one of his books, The, the Matrix, um, The Divine Matrix. He says we, uh, about attraction. He's talking about attraction. 
we are often attracted to people who are holding something of ourselves to remind us of who we are. I love that. Isn't that beautiful? And, and to compliment ourselves. <clears throat> I, I like what you said, though, because it, it was inside of me. There's no question. Of all of the feelings, was... all of the emotion. Was... But you know what I used to do as a kid? Now, this is, this is getting like a coaching session. You're coaching me. Um, I remember as a kid being moved by silly TV shows like Father Knows Best or Leave It to Beaver. They always used to end with some kind of emotional thing. I would start to tear up. Now I'd hold it in. So the, the emotions were there. I mean, I was a human being, you know? Of course, they're always there. They're always there, always but there. I had to contain, I had to contain. And so from this work that I, that I did in terms of domestic violence and working with men, it opened me up and that makes my, makes me work more effectively with both men and women, but definitely with men, because I know what men in the United States of America go through, that had to be a man box, be tough, be strong, be in command, have the final word. And then when that's, when that's threatened, that's when someone can lash out. That's a pressure cooker. If you're not expressing your emotion, something's got to give, either physically with ulcers or some other kind of ailment, or boom, it will explode. So it explodes, explodes physically, and it explodes emotionally, or it implodes emotionally. So it can explode emotionally by having some sort of anger attack, panic attack, rage attack, huge anxiety, or it can implode in, in which, which case it creates tremendous depression. Those emotions right. have to go somewhere. That's right. Yeah. So I'm really, you know, so as I said before, I went through with this sort of party line kind of platitudes of I don't need anybody. I have what I need. My family, that's all I need. Now look what I do. What we do as coaches, you could narrow it down to a couple of things. One of the things is connection. I'm all, that's all I do is connect with people now. And that's what fulfills me. So I have learned to finally live my purpose. So I'm living proof. I think you are too, because you've done different things where it's never too late to figure things out. It's never too late to take things on, try something different, learn, grow. That's what coaching is all about. It's all and, about learning uh, and growing. Absolutely. So if I'm not learning and growing, how can I be a coach to others? Exactly. So I'm trying to turn off the sound on my phone. <laughs> because it's making funny noises. Okay. So now... This, this is prelude to talking about the work now that you've been doing lately as another part of your coaching practice in working with men. You, you've given us the backdrop. You've given us the background. And now I'm imagining to myself all of the ways that you've been able to kind of strategize and create, you know, golden nuggets and tips 
for men and to help them learn how to be open and help them learn how to be vulnerable and help them learn how to let go of their need to control and be and and be willing to feel be willing to feel fear to be willing to feel sadness to be willing to feel compassion to be willing to feel empathy those are the soft uh very difficult emotions probably for most of us but what you're telling me more so for men because women have been conditioned differently exactly there is a corollary to how to be a man box and that's how to be a woman box and you could look at that how we raise our little girls it's not ideal they're boxed in also however not to go through the whole exercise although we can if you want girl little girls are allowed to feel a little bit more they're allowed to express their feelings in general. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're, you know, uh, that's part of being a little girl is to have feelings and express feelings. Well, oh, 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 as, long as, as long as they're nice feelings, Peter, I, the, I little said, girls are not, expo- not, not uh, expected or allowed to express anger. That's not nice. Exactly right. Exactly right. So I said it was not ideal. However, there is a fuller expression of emotion for little girls. That, that's an, I'm exaggerating, you know, nothing is exactly the rule, but I think that holds true. Don't you, that, that at least there isn't, you're, well, maybe you tell me, what's your experience? Well, I mean, let's just see what, what's around us. Women are more likely to form close relationships with other women. Yep. And and the kinds of things women talk about, they talk about their feelings. Yep. Now look at the kinds of friendships men form. Usually it has nothing to do with getting together, discussing feelings. It may be getting together, having a beer and talking about sports. That's safe. That's it. That's it. Yeah. Or work. Or you work, know. of course. Yeah. Or well, women and stuff like that, right? <laughs> uh, that's, that's a whole other thing. That's right. What little boys are ra- raised or socialized to, to conquest. Yeah, it's exactly. You know, we expect uh, little boys to have sexual experience but, but at an early age. Girls. I, not I, little girls. Not, not little girls. So I don't know who the boy, little boys are supposed to have sexual experience <laughs> with. You know, that's right. That's right. There's a great, now, none of what I'm saying is original to me. You know, Uh, I've learned a lot. There's an organization called a call to men. I don't know if you've heard of them. It's a great um, Ted talk by a man named uh, Tony Porter, who's one of the founders of a call to men. We used to work together. First time I was in NIAC not directly together, but associated, did some work together. Um, he's, a, he's a black man, big, strong black man. And he does a TED talk about the man box. That's fantastic. Just fantastic. Brings it to life. And the, the man I mentioned before, the author, Paul Kibble, was out on the West Coast. He's one of the originators of that metaphor. The man uh, box. And that the books he's written about the man box well worth exploring for people. So that, that's where I get my training, my ideas. And then I apply it to the men that I work with. 
also to the women, but to the men I work with, that's what we're talking about now. So I'm offering individual and group coaching. I'm really excited about bringing groups of men together in a safe environment. You got to create a safe space. Yeah. Agreed upon kind of contract or covenant to be able to talk about things. And I find it really, really interesting. So I'm going to continue my work with men, but now it's more preventive, excuse me, rather than men who are already caught up in the justice system from, from acting badly, from committing some crime. Uh, and I'm also looking to work younger again, again, full circle right. uh, in the school. So I'm really excited about this mentor, mentoring work that I'm doing. So I haven't met your sons for a long time. Oh, that would so, be great. So tell me how they're doing as young, young men, middle-aged or approaching middle age. To me, they're still very young since yes, I'm yes. You know, 35, 40 years ahead of them. But anyway. Well, Isaac just turned 42. Uh, he's our oldest son. I don't, you, I'm sure you met him, but I don't think you know him. Uh, Gabriel just turned 40. Isn't that amazing? It is amazing. 40 years old. Um, they're very different men. They were different boys. Isaac was always a free spirit. I mean, full of himself. I mean, two years old, three years old. And Lois, who I learned a lot from, I'm lucky to have some, a partner who uh, really understands child development. And she said, Peter, our goal with Isaac is not to break his spirit. Isn't that lovely? Isn't that wonderful? It is wonderful. Because As, you, know, you see how, I, how many reasons you're still discovering to remind yourself why you were attracted to Lois in the first <laughs> That's right. <laughs> oh, I learned so much from her um, and still do. And so we raised Isaac that way. And he was a handful, never off the charts, but he goes his own way. He's a free spirit. Gabriel was very different. I don't know how much you remember Gabriel. He was like, you know, perfect performer kind of kid. He would do what he's supposed to do, do it really well. They both were athletes. The greatest joy of my role as father was coaching them in the various town sports, but they each were different. Isaac was not a practice. I just wrote a blog about deferred gratification and I used the boys, my sons as examples. Isaac, no deferred gratification, immediate, no practice. Gabriel, who knows where he learned it, was very much, um, you know, planning, he would practice, 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 and then perform on the court. So it's really interesting, the two of them. They're both doing well. Isaac, wouldn't you know, um, one of the mistakes I made as a father and we made as parents was forcing him to go to college. He had no interest in college whatsoever. We forced him twice to try college. All it was was a mistake and, and costly. He didn't like it. So, so what did he choose instead? Okay, he ended up, he's in the music industry out in Los Angeles, found an industry, and he had his winding road getting there too, because he did some assistant teaching as a big heart. He could work with uh, emotionally disturbed kids like you wouldn't believe. Um, I could tell you another story about how Lois introduced him to that in his life. Um, Maybe we, we save that for next time. Yeah, yeah. But, but, but just tell me what he's doing. So he, he, found, he found his way by managing, Gabriel had a rock and roll band. Isaac said, I'll manage you. And they headed for California. 
Isaac learned that's what his passion is. Gabriel gave it about six years, really tried, had a hard rock band, they were really good, it's a tough business. Packed it in, came home, started a business of his own. Isaac stayed out in Los Angeles and has been, wouldn't you know, he found a career. They never ask for a resume. They never ask for college. It's all what you can deliver. He's a promoter. He's a natural promoter. He's a salesperson. He, he understands talent. So he discovers talent and develops. And he's really starting to make it. It's very exciting. It took him a long time. It's a tough business. Gabriel came back from that band situation, started a beer company, if you could believe that. I know. Um, a company called Smart Beer, New York's first organic beer. Yes. Learned from it, but it was tough. Um, it needs a lot of money. And his one mistake, he was born to the wrong family. That's not, I don't, have, <laughs> I don't have that kind of money, nor do I have that kind of connections. But he learned from it. Then he picked up and went to Colorado, where he finished college, and is now learning from what he did now he's, he's a, um, a consultant in the better for you beverage category with three or four clients. He doesn't have the headache of running the business himself. He just helps them sell, market, develop relationships. He's doing great. And that focus that I told you about, that deferred gratification, yep. Abe has applied to money. He, Fantastic. for the last three years, he lived on less than half of his salary. He's got, he, he's got discipline. And now he's coaching Isaac about money, who now needs to learn that. He's coaching his old man about that. I was never good with money for the future. Anyhow, so they're doing great. I'm so proud of them. I love that success story. Uh, and they're both being uh, true to themselves. So, the, you know, th this, this conversation is taking a, a bit of a, another turn that I had thought of, which is all fine because that it's just going where it needs to go. But, you know, you teach people how to find their, their purpose, yes. how to live their passion and how perfect it is that your sons have found that for themselves because you and Lois have allowed that despite the fact you tried to force Isaac to go to college. <laughs> You know, may, maybe in its own way, that was some form of gift for him. At least, in the very least, he knows what he doesn't want to do. But he, but in the meantime, he has a strong spirit. As you said, Lois didn't want them, you didn't want to break their spirit. Right. Uh, and sometimes we do have to, you know, uh, kind of force our kids to do certain things they don't want to do. They don't want to brush their teeth. They don't want to do all kinds of things. So, you know, sometimes, you know, doing something that they say they don't want to do doesn't always impress me. I don't want to. I don't want to. Well, yeah, but eat your vegetables anyway, you know. <laughs> That's right. That's but, our job, part of our job. Yeah. So getting back to mentor, and this is an important part of the conversation, because you, you nurtured and empowered your sons to find their way, to find their passion. And what do you know now about yourself and your sons that can remind us of how important it is to find your passion as it relates to any other relationship that you're in? It's a great question. Um, you know, there's not much that's more important than that, really. Because, you know, I lived a lot of my adult life not really living my passion in terms of what I did for a living. And it, it, it almost was like never quite fitting, even, even with success. 
It just emotionally didn't feel right. And I wasn't living a very emotional life. So I could, I could continue that, you know? And uh, I just had a flash of my father because that was him too. Mm -hmm. but, but, uh, let's look, but let's look at that word, finding your purpose and, and living your passion. Yeah. You have to be in touch with all of you. Yep. You have to be willing to fail. You have to be willing to risk. Yep. You have to be willing to feel the spectrum of emotions to, first of all, find your, your purpose and then live it with passion. You're not going to live with passion by living in the middle lane of, of emotions where you're kind of blah, right? You're neither high nor low. Oh, isn't that interesting? Yeah, and that leads to regret. I think. And it, lead, it leads to a feeling of emptiness. Yep. And it leads to a feeling of numbness. Uh, I often tell the story that years ago when I was developing my voice, I went to a voice builder who began to develop the lower voice. And I went to him at, with this little soprano voice about this big. And he said, I can hear your potential. But in order to hit the high notes with power, you have to develop the lower voice. You have to be willing to go low to go high. Wow. And that's a metaphor. You have to be willing to feel the depth of emotion that we call the dark emotions or the heavy emotions, the sadness, the pain. If we also want to feel the joy, which is the payoff of living your passion. I love that thought. That's powerful. But if you don't allow yourself to feel everything, how can you feel fully alive living your passion? Where with full abandon, you say, wow, that was great. I'm so happy. How can you do that if you don't allow yourself to feel in the depths, right? Correct. When I pushed the send button of my first book, well, I've written other books, but the first book that did well on Amazon and, you know, and, uh, but the first book in my ageless, ageless and sexy series, when I, when I, you're laughing, but it, you know, I started writing it when I was 70 and I was writing it about this stage of life when, you know, it's still the sky's the limit. Right. And, uh, so I struggled, I wrote, I revised, I gave up, I picked it up again. Anyway, long story short, I finally got to the point after all kinds of struggles, all kinds of disappointments, I finally hit the send button to create space in uh, Amazon because they, they're the, the, the publishers. The feeling of elation, the feeling of relief, the feeling of release, the feeling of joy. Oh, I'll probably fall flat on my face, but so what? Maybe no one will like my book, but I did it. I did it. That experience, you know, and it was the same as a singer. Hot oh, damn, I did it. I hit the high note on Yom Kippur. I got all the way through the day. <laughs> right so whatever it is 
that gives you that sense of accomplishment and joy. Why? Because you fought for it. Why? Because you were willing to feel deeply and willing to risk and willing to make mistakes. All of that. How many of the men that you've worked with over the years have initially allowed themselves to feel the full spectrum and be willing to risk? That's the, that's the challenge with men. It really is. I, I start with, usually with most of my clients, men or women, they'll come to me for a particular reason. Could be their career, could, could be a small business they're running, could be um, a relationship, it could be self-esteem, whatever it is. I always say, just be open, open to where things lead in our discussions. Now, not to generalize, but the women I work with, they're much more open to that, following the path. Men tend to be, again, boxed in. So the chat, you know, I, no, I'm here to talk about, you know, my, my business or my career, and that's where they stay. Uh, but how do you separate your career from your family, from your relationships, from your self-esteem? Our lives are so interconnected. That's one of the joys about coaching for me is, you know, following those paths if clients are open to it. So with men, that, that you hit the, the real challenge. Some resist, some, um, are, you know, go there and get a, and, and, and take a look at their emotional side, their feeling side. But it's a struggle because they've been locked in, many of them. Well, what I've noticed in the men I've worked with uh, is a lot of them are professionals. So they may be doctors, lawyers, really good at business, uh, trainers, all kinds of things. And their, their partner's complaint of them in their relationship is, you're really good at your work and you really suck at being a husband or a lover, wow. right? Like, I wish you could be as good at, you know, being a partner as you are working. So men tend to get really good at their work yep. when, they, when they do, right? And that's their strong suit. But they cannot seem to shift gears. I mean, how often have I heard, like, for, for instance, the, the, the wives of doctors that I've worked with over the years. Can't you just be as nice to me as you are your nurses? <laughs> or this the lawyer who has a secretary can't you just be as nice to me as you are with your office manager and your secretary why, why is it you have to be such a jerk when you get home and that's often the push-pull in those relationships where the man is really good at functioning as a conqueror that's right in, in the outside world, but he's not too, too great at being vulnerable, being able to hear his wife or his partner. So we used to use, I'm sorry. So, so listening, we get back to the issue of listening. So what have you discovered? Well, what you just talked about is something we, we, we touch on and not more than touch on. We talk a lot about it in the domestic violence program from that. And that is, we know that almost every man in America, you know, there's always a percentage who don't know this, but almost everyone, 95, 96% of, of men know how to be respectful. 
just as you're describing, on the job, professionally, with their staff, with the nurses, at the bank, in the store. Now, what's the one area that men cross the line from respect to disrespect? Easily, easily. With their partners. And isn't that amazing? With the person that, at least once upon a time, you have to assume the relationship started with love, started with affection. Why is it? Now, our training goes deeply into the sociological, the societal reasons for that. Men literally, if you go back, and historic reasons, men used to literally own their women. Women were property. And that still, there's a line that goes through that today. It is. is. It's a through line, Peter. It, It exists with the doctors and the lawyers, too. Yeah. Their, their wife is an appendage and she is chattel. Isn't that amazing? Yep. So that's what we're dealing with. That's what you women deal with all the time. It, it must be exhausting. Well, I was blessed. Good for you. I was blessed. So I, I was married to an enlightened man, an awakened man. And he should rest in peace. I was blessed. So I was, I had, you know, I was married to the love of my life for 32 years. So, so I was blessed and, and I'm attracted to similar kinds of men. So although I've been a widow a long time, I've, I've had some very lovely relationships with some special people. Cool. But uh, the kind of man who is able to be strong and powerful in his work, but also soft and almost submissive emotionally with me. So that's a gift. You are fortunate, that's awesome. So give me some some golden nuggets, some tips for our listeners here for what you've learned about what men need to be aware of and practice because practice makes perfect. As you say, how do you get to Carnegie hall? You practice, (laughs) practice a lot, right? Right. So how is it you would guide any man who's having difficulty, a challenge in his relationship? There's conflict. There's conflict very often because of one or two things that are kind of, uh, just say generic in, in the makeup of men, which tend to uh, poke them, trigger them. So what would you say to the majority well, of men? What I go through is a process of taking a look at, I'm really a strong believer in this, and this is what my, my book goes into. Now, now, I'm not a therapist. There's a distinction, as you know, between coaching and therapy. However, well, the, the difference with me is I'm both because I am a trained clinical social worker. Oh, great. Okay. Right. So I, I combine. Terrific. I, I am not. So I'm aware of, you know, where I can go and where I don't go. Exactly. But there, there, is a, there is a similarity in that I can look at the way I, the way I define it is I can work with somebody who, who's just as an example, depressed lowercase letters. Yes. You know, not clinically depressed, not uppercase letters. Um, and I'm, I'm aware of that. In fact, I get some of my best clients from therapists because they 
know that my approach to coaching is it's more about, um, you know, today and tomorrow, setting goals, taking a look at who you are, what you, what, what brought you to today and where you want to go and the steps along the way that you'd like to travel with that. So we look at, you know, paths, what are the desires, what Absolutely. are the well, goals? What you and I know as coaches mm -hmm. is that the key for any kind of change in experience of yourself is in the action you take. You could analyze yourself till the cows come home. You, totally. can be in, you can be in your head understanding the damage that your mother, father, uncle, uh, you know, teachers made on you. It doesn't help until and unless you start to take different kinds of action so that you experience different kinds of results. That's why I love coaching, because it's action-based. Yes, you have to be awake and aware, but you need to take action. So I didn't mean to interrupt you because you were onto something, but I want to just interject that. No, I totally agree. Action, you know, you can't make change without action. No question about it. I do think there's value in, in, in exploring how you got to be who you are mm -hmm. in terms of. Well, that's why you do the assessment. Yeah. And, and if, if the more people are open to that, you can learn. Because, I mean, I'll put it this way. I don't think we have free will until we can do that. Because other than that, you're being controlled by your past. Whatever that past is, whatever the drama or trauma was, that formed us. You know, we're affected by every single person we've ever been in contact with, every event that's taken place, our environment, everything. Now, some some of those things have more power than others. Certainly parents or primary caregivers have more power, but we learn from everything. So we look at that and then it, and then what? That's where the action comes in. You know, why, why am I, because then you can learn why, why you're bringing that past to your present and to the future rather than understanding what the past was and then making a decision. I don't want to continue that. You know, whatever that was, mother, father, whatever, saying, filling your head with negative thoughts, limited thinking, whatever it was, why continue that? You're doing their work for them. So there's a certain amount of exploration, discovery, um, and then comes, then you combine it with what are my dreams, what are my passions, what are my skills, what are my capabilities, where do I want to go, what are my needs, what do I want? And you begin to look at it and then, as you say, take action, take those steps. Because you could have the greatest plan, this greatest goal, this overarching goal. It means nothing until you figure out the steps along the way. And that's what I think coaching is. That's what I love about it is you can be supportive for each of those steps. Be there. Not so much guide, but support. Help um, discover and then go, go do and then, then we'll look at it and then build on success. Um, that's where I think coaching can be successful. And with men, so you want to, how to break out of that box. Am, am I being constricted by the way that I was socialized to be? Am I going to settle for that? Uh, and then you, I like, with men, I like to appeal to their intellect rather than their emotions sometimes because mm -hmm. 
it, sometimes it's easier to get through. Um, so talking about things like respect, you can have a conversation. Isn't that amazing that you'll more lash out with the person you're married to or, or partnered with than anybody else? Why is that? That makes no sense logically, does it? It just doesn't. There has to be a better way. You figure out the ways, you man, you figure out the ways to communicate and get along with and get through things with other people in your life. Why is it that, you know, brick wall and obstinance and, 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 and holding to one way instead of just relaxing and opening up to the possibilities? So there's a lot to uh, discover there. A lot to discover. And uh, what would you say is the, the real reason most men will be willing to do something that's hard, which means to open up? In other words, what have you discovered is the motivator for most men to be willing to expand, to break outside of the box? What is, what is the prize on the other side? Well, I don't know about the prize on the other side, but before you start that journey is, how's it working out? How's it going? Is it working out? What do you keep, what do you keep running into? What patterns keep, keep blocking you? Are you happy with, with, the, with, the, with the roadblocks, with the dead ends, with the, with the friction? Whatever it is in your relationship, if that's what we're talking about, um, and if you are not happy and if you can take a look at, you know, repeating patterns, we're all filled with repeating patterns. We just live it out over and over and over again until you look at it and then you say, okay, that was then I'm going to try a different path. And that's the action part that you're talking about. I'm going to try it a different way. I'm going to enter into a conversation a little differently. I'm going to say, when I get home from work, before I settle in, how was your day? How do you feel? You know, if that's something that you don't do normally mm -hmm. and just maybe breathe a little bit and practice listening. You know, we used to say one of the things in the domestic violence program for men, how could we change things? Because domestic violence, you know, crosses every group. You kind of alluded to that before. It's yeah. one of the few universals. Every, every socioeconomic, racial, ethnic group in America, there's domestic violence. From the richest to, of the rich to the poorest of the poor, everybody in between. So if you can get a man to take a look at it um, and ask those questions, are you happy with that repeating pattern? What could you do about it? What would you want different, differently? Can you visualize it? Can you describe it? Can you talk about it? Will you try X, Y, Z and see how that works? Step by step. So another way of saying what you're saying is that when a man is dedicated to being inside that box and exercises power and control, which often becomes abuse, mm -hmm. He, um, he doesn't allow himself to experience connection. 
he's creating disconnection. And yet, I think often what anybody is expressing when they are angry, when they, when they react by pushing back and defending themselves against real or perceived wrongs or attacks or criticism, they're really saying that they crave connection. They just don't know how to do it. They don't know how to achieve it. That's right. So I often remind men, you know, you can afford to say that you're not always right. You can afford to say to your partner, you know, you have a point. <laughs> That's a good one. You can afford to take a moment, take a deep breath, pause, to give yourself a moment to consider, do I really want to hit or lash out, to hit with the tongue or to hit with your fist or whatever it is? Is that really what you want? So sometimes I talk about the power of the pause, just to give yourself a moment to consider, take that deep breath. That's right. Yeah. Just break the pattern, try something different, try to get in touch with what you really need instead of lashing out in whatever form you're lashing out or instead of taking control. Because, you know, if again, you look at that metaphor of the box, it's very constricting. It's not fulfilling. It's and, not, it's, and it's keeping you in and not allowing anyone else in. Exactly. Right. It's, it's like an armor. It is. You know, and I used to use humor that way. Sarcasm, the way I used it, and mo most people who are sarcastic, it's to keep at arm's length. There's a definition. I, I, I looked it up, the word sarcasm. You're not, if you don't know it, you, you'll be... I, I don't. I don't. What? Tell be me. Surprised. It's 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 a it's a Greek word, and it means tearing of the flesh. Ooh, isn't that powerful? Oh, ouch! And if you think about it, particularly in the United States, because I, I don't know that much about other areas, but our American humor usually has a victim, usually has somebody the quote butt of the joke, right? Sure. Particularly sarcasm. The more sarcastic it is, the more it's putting someone down putting someone down well isn't this the basis of saturday night live <laughs> yes yes now, and 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 listen it, it yes sometimes it's in good fun sometimes it isn't yeah. when you use it personally believe me i know it can be off-putting it can be shielding it can be that's my armor you know i'll get a good yuck and you know you're not going to believe this sheila for me i guess you will You've heard it all. But in the training that I went through, the first training, and I've been through trainings over and over again about this stuff. Each time I learned something different. But I found myself using the same friggin' cliches that men use oh. who, are, who are lashing out and beating. Things like, you're too sensitive. Lois, you're being too sensitive. You're taking away my personality. I said things like that. Wow. It's hard to about, believe. It's hard about, to believe. About my humor. Because that's how it felt to me. Yeah. She was trying to change me. Now, I don't know why she stayed with me through all that. Because she really tried. She really tried to let me know, Peter, enough. Enough teasing. Stop with the teasing. That's something she used to say. And I used to just laugh it off. 
because I could. But now, so my work is to notice that because, listen, it's hard to break habits, you know. It is. I still love a good laugh. <laughs> but I'm, I'm, we'll have to ask Lois, but I think I'm much better at it. Oh, when you talk about kids, talk about little Gabriel, I was sarcastic with the kids. You can't be sarcastic with kids. Kids don't get sarcasm. It's cruel to kids. And I, I would laugh because they didn't get it, you know. Now, now you're going to hate me for this. <laughs> I'm not going to hate you for anything. You're just <laughs> you're, you're being uh, transparent yeah. in a way that's very endearing to me because you're letting me and our listeners know by virtue of this conversation the extent to which you have been growing, expanding, and learning in your life and how your personal life and your professional life overlap. You cannot separate them from each other. Absolutely. One has everything to do with the other and has an influence on the other. You can't leave one home. Leave so one for home. men, and it's probably true for women too, but I know for men, it's the work is try to stay open, open to the possibilities. As you said, breathe, pause, listen. Oh, what I started to say before, we came up with a solution, one of the solutions. If you could, what, what's the one thing that if you could do, wave a magic wand and it would stop domestic violence? One of the things was not, you know, not totally serious, but um, if we could teach men to listen, to really actively Listen, listen from zero, not having something to counter, not having something to control, but truly and, and, listen. Oh my that goodness. go a long way. And, and that's an art. And you really do have to practice that because it is so automatic to listen to someone else with an ear to how am I going to respond to this or how am I going to protect myself or defend myself from what I'm feeling is some form of criticism or complaint. This is the ongoing challenge in listening. Absolutely. So I said to one of my clients this week, when he, when he, when he feels his girlfriend is, is complaining, he feels like it's an attack, he shuts down or he lashes out. Yep. Because Why? Because his greatest fear is being a bad boyfriend. So he lashes out or defends himself, becomes defensive because she will say, you always do this or whatever. So immediately he says, I don't, that's not true. I do this, blah, blah, blah. So he starts to defend himself. I said, James, take a deep breath. And when she says something like that, you always do this. Take her seriously, not literally. And wonder what the hell she's talking about. Ask her. I don't see it that way, honey. What is it? You tell me more about what you see, because I don't see that. Be curious. He looked at me like I had three heads. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's new. It's new to men. It really but, is. But he's a psychologist. Hey, it doesn't matter. It doesn't he matter. Might, he's a psychologist. He learned it up here. No. He learned it in here. So he looked at me and he said, I never would have thought it that way. I thought about it that way. I said, well, here's a new possibility. And he said, it's a fascinating dynamic. I said, isn't it though? Wouldn't it change things between you and your sweetheart? If you would actually just be curious about what you think she's complaining about, 
Don't you really want to know how to make this better instead of always getting your back up, trying to, you know, defend yourself against what she's complaining about? Never get into the heart of the matter. So things are getting better in that arena. <laughs> That's cool. Right. You know, I was thinking about, you know, your whole, your love doctor thing and, yeah. and, and your focus on love. And when men, when boys are raised in that box, that had to be a man box, there's no room for love. There's no room for self-love when you think about it. Because if we did the exercise together and, and kept going, you know, what do we say to little boys, you know, be tough, be strong, stand up for yourself, man up, all those things. We're raising little warriors instead of whole human beings with a full range of emotion. So if that's the case for many, not all, but many boys to men in our society, it doesn't leave room for, that, that doesn't feel good. Ultimately, it doesn't feel good. And, and you can't really be happy with yourself if that's, if that's your emotional state all the time. There's no room for love for self. And therefore, you're so raw with your intimate partner. Tender, you know, you know, um, exactly. Sensitive. Well, yes, yes. In a, so, in a bad way. I don't mean, you know, no. sensitive, but, you know. Yeah, you're on edge. You're constantly, you know, braced for defending yourself against the next onslaught, right? And what we really all want is connection. And yet what we're all in the habit of doing is defending ourselves against being vulnerable because yeah. we're afraid of being attacked. So we, we need to be spiritual warriors. There's different kinds of warriors, but we need to be Spiritual warriors often say, think in terms of playing emotional or martial arts. Emotional martial arts is to learn to deflect the hit. It's a whole different concept. So, my goodness, Peter, this, this conversation could go on for, I, I would think, days, if not, you know, weeks. <laughs> <clears throat> Yep. So, so I would like to invite you back to, you know, to continue on this track because we, we've, we've gotten onto the subject, uh, subject of self-love, which is so important. And it comes up in almost every conversation that I've had so far uh, that's a part of this, this uh, ongoing episodes uh, in the podcast. And uh, what I do know, and you know too, without self-love, how in the world can you have love with anyone else? Totally true. So on that note, I'm going to invite you to come back to kind of take it, the conversation from this point and to go into a realm that you and I really find as our kind of our sweet spot. And that's talking about what life is like and the world of loving relationships and the world of creativity is for people in what you call the fourth quarter. <laughs> and uh, I don't know if I'm in the fourth quarter or the third quarter, but one of those quarters. And for me, I know life is just getting better because I'm stretching, because I'm more willing to be vulnerable and to take chances, right? 
That's just awesome. So, you know, life is, is willing to live it fully, right? And that's what you and I are all about in the work that we do to, to support people, to teach people, to remind people that life's to be lived fully. That means to feel everything and take risks, be willing to fall down, be willing to fall on your face. Okay, so I got bruised up, you know, but I took a chance. So until next time, Peter, thank you so much for being with us. Do you want to tell us how people can reach you? In terms of uh, website, phone number? What we, yeah, what phone you? number, website. How, how, would, how, how can people find you? Uh, telephone number is 845-358-5703. That's my office number. Um, email is, is my name, Heyman, H-E-Y. M-A-N-N, it's like heyman with two N's, dot peter at gmail.com. My website is, my practice is called Breakthrough, Breakthrough Career and Life Coaching. So it's breakthroughwithcoachpete.com, all one word, breakthroughwithcoachpete.com. And I go by Coach Pete, that's what, I love that. I love that too. Yeah. So Coach Pete, I adore you. I am so happy that we're still in each other's lives. Please give... Lois, a hug for me. And when you see the boys, I know they're not near you right now. They're off living their lives, but tell them Cantor Pearl says hello and uh, sends her love. And I love you. Here's a virtual hug. Thank I you. Love you. I love what you're doing. I love your work and I love you. I love your spirit. You are amazing. Thank you. So everyone, until next time, this is Sheila Pearl, the love doctor, saying live your best life and make love better. <laughs>